It's wonderful to be back with you again um, this weekend. Um, I, I kind of regret something that I said last week because I had no proof. Um, I talked about how I had these four wonderful grandchildren, and so I'm going to be kind of vain right now and introduce them to you because they mean a lot to me. So on the left is Finley. He lives in Pennsylvania with my son and daughter-in-law, and he's a year and a half. The one in the middle, um, she does try to strangle him sometimes. She's Nora Lynn. She will be four in May. And William on the end is two years old as of last Saturday. And they are very, very busy. Next slide. The wee one at the bottom uh, was born six weeks premature and his little head could fit in that little cup right there in my hand. And he is growing and uh, he keeps eating and growing and he's got a very soft spot in his grandfather's heart. So those are the treasures that uh, we just absolutely love to spend time with and have just as much delight in allowing them to go home. Next picture, that's just proud grandma and grandpa. That's Wanda. Yes, I've got to stop looking at it. So, Jesus and the upside-down kingdom. We're talking this morning specifically about compassion. And I want to give you um, some illustrations about compassion, just three illustrations, because I just know from experience that compassion can be seen in so many different kinds of contexts. And uh, perhaps you might relate to one of these. The first one is about a farmer coming out of his field along the back roads of a remote area. I think he was a Mennonite in his buggy. And he, just as he pulled out onto the road, some kid from the city came out and was speeding so fast that it hit his rig and knocked it over into the ditch. Farmer's lying there, pinned under his wagon, His dog is not far away, and his mule across the road in the other ditch. He can't do anything. He's underneath the wagon. And about that time, a car pulls up, and the farmer thought, thank God someone is going to help me. And when he saw that it was the sheriff, he was even more encouraged. The sheriff looked over the situation at a glance, and he went and he first saw the mule, had a broken leg and was suffering badly, so he pulled out his revolver and shot it to end his misery. None of us like that picture, but he did it, I think, out of compassion. Sheriff looked over again and walked across the road, and there was the dog that was just as bad off, and he did the same to the dog to end his misery. Then he walked back over to the farmer underneath that wagon. He asked if he was in pain. He said, never felt better in my life. Told you I have a bad sense of humor. This one is not so much about compassion, but I think you might relate to it. The Millers were shown into the dentist's office where Mr. Miller made it very clear that he was in a big hurry. No expensive extras, doctor, he ordered. No gas, no needles, none of that fancy stuff. Just pull the tooth and get it over with. He said, I wish my more, more patients were as stoic as you. Now, which tooth is it? Mr. Miller turned to his wife and said, show him your tooth. (laughs) I'm almost done. The last one, 
is about a church in need of a pastor. And a candidate came and he preached on hell. The next Sunday, the second candidate came and lo and behold, if he didn't preach on hell as well. So they had this wrestling with what they were going to do because the fundamental teaching was the same as that as the first one. So when the members of the church were called upon to vote, they voted for the second candidate. When they were asked why, their answer was this. The, spur- the first one spoke as if he were glad that people were going there, while the second one seemed to be sorry for it. Compassion. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here this morning. We don't have to ask you to be here. You are. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. I pray that we would be listening to your still, small voice. And God, whatever you teach us this morning, I pray that you would give us the courage to act. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the kingdom of God, the right-side-up kingdom, compassion trumps rules. The big idea today is that grace triumphs over law, even when it seems to be in the wrong time, in the wrong place. It can, be, it can seem backwards. Those who have a compassionate heart don't just settle for the feeling of compassion. That's really not compassion. That has gone only part way. These people who have this stirring in their heart, this feeling of compassion toward people, do something about it. Jesus had a reputation for this. It was one of the reasons why he was regularly in trouble, typically with the religious leaders, because of the compassion he had for humanity, for the way that he involved himself with people who most of the religious leaders thought should just be disregarded. If we go back to Luke chapter 2, and you don't have to do that, I'm just going to do a quick summary. We see Jesus as a 12-year-old, now considered a man after celebrating his bar mitzvah. And it was at this time and in this place, this age, that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went to Jerusalem to go and celebrate the Passover, which was customary to do every year. After the Passover, Jesus' parents went home along with a great number of people, not knowing that Jesus had stayed behind. Many of you know this story. They had assumed that he was traveling with other people um, of, of either family or friends. One text says that they thought he was in the caravan. I didn't think the caravan existed back then, but it did. So... After these parents discover this, they turn, return to Jerusalem, and three days later, they find him. So that's searching for him three days, and then going and coming back took a lot of time, and they were kind of distressed people. So when they find him three days later, do you know where he was? Do any of you remember where he was? He was in the temple. Literally, he was in the temple sitting among who? The religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Twelve years old. And don't think, well, he's Jesus, he knew everything and all the rest. No, he was a boy that was learning and growing and becoming 
who he wasn't quite yet to be. Verse 48 of Luke 2 says this, His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. In response, Jesus asked his mother this question. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? So at at the, the ripe old age of 12 years old, Jesus knows this attachment that is to be his related to the temple, to the synagogue. I'm going to make five observations this morning about compassion. And I, I ask that you would pay attention to see if one of these relates to you, your journey, your experience. Maybe God's going to poke you about something that might help you. The first, from verse 10 of Luke 13 reads, one Sabbath day as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. Note, Jesus is not a listener anymore. He is a teacher. And as he teaches, I think moving his eyes from face to face to face to get an idea of who is in that crowd, Jesus gets a sense. And he sees a a woman, the text says, who had been crippled by an evil spirit. Now, I have known some very elderly people um, that have literally been bent over because of age and whatever has happened to their spine over the years. And one in particular, I I, uh, used to speak at a number of uh, seniors' residences, and in this case, this one was the leader of that group. And I had to get low to him when he'd speak because all he could do from way down here is look up like this. And he had nothing that he could do about it. He died in that condition. So Jesus sees this woman. And observation one is this. Compassionate people are paying attention. They're watching. They're listening. They see like Jesus, the broken, the wounded, people in need. It's so evident to them when, for many of us, um, we're blind to it. We just don't see it. Somehow, for some reason, we miss it. But other people, they're so focused on helping and compassion, heart toward people, that it's so obvious to them. That word crippled in the Greek literally means weakness or sickness. And in the text, in different texts, it's called an evil spirit or a spirit of infirmity. It indicates that the sickness was caused by this evil spirit. Caused by this spirit. The next part of the verse highlights again, she had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight or to lift herself up. The word here that says bent double literally means to bend together. In the Greek, it's a medical word for the curvature of the spine, literally leaving her unable to get up or stand straight, unable to straighten the vertebrae of her spine. There's nothing that she could do about it, just like the gentleman I referred to earlier. The only difference is Jesus was seeing her condition. Somehow he knew how long she'd been in this condition. Observation number two. 
Compassion, compassionate people are safe people. They're people who are safe enough to be told someone's story. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have experienced it quite a lot as a pastor. Um, I would just be sitting randomly or somebody starts a conversation and you can just see there's a bit of a hesitancy. Um, This happened recently, um, probably back last fall um, when I was at Stainer. And a a guy I'd never met before was in the room and he just started asking me questions. And I thought, well, that's always a good thing. But then he stops asking questions and he just started to do this. (laughs) He just kept unpacking his story and unpacking his story and I'm just amazed until he stopped in his tracks. And they're, they're words that I've heard many times from people. He said, I don't know why I just told you that. I said, I do. I said, somehow you find that I'm someone safe so that you can tell your story to. Compassionate people are like that. They're not thinking about the next thing that they're going to say because the other person said this. They're listening If anything, they're asking clarifying questions so they can learn more about your story. Because the more they know of your story, the better they know how to have compassion on you, in your circumstances, in your journey. And there are people that are desperately waiting to have someone care about their story. Verse 12 says, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. There's a couple of things going on here. The first is this, imagine if you would, someone asking this crippled woman to stand up and come here. It, it, to me, isn't, it just almost seems there's a piece of that just seems so cruel. Why would you do that? In front of a watching, staring crowd, this is what Jesus does. And Jesus has done it before with every disciple. He called them to come to him. They weren't ill or crippled or anything else, but nonetheless, Jesus did it before, and he will do it again. Imagine you're trying to get to him. The effort it would have took, the time it would have taken this, the awkwardness of it all. Perhaps there were some compassionate people in the crowd that helped her to Jesus. But she came. Imagine the crowd spellbound with all senses inside of them aware of the unfolding event in front of them. Some of these people would have known Jesus, had seen Jesus, had heard him teach. And so there's this heightening and growing anticipation about what's going to happen next. And I've been in rooms like you have where you could have heard a pin drop. And I suspect this situation would have been like that. Just silence, just people staring to see what Jesus is going to do. And I believe that this invitation of Jesus to come actually makes it possible for this woman to exercise her own faith that Jesus could heal her. I honestly believe that God intends us to have a part in the help that he wants to give us. Sometimes it's resigning our will to his. Sometimes it's literally... Um, doing something strategic in our own lives so that God has a fuller sway of work to do in us. Third observation. 
Compassionate people value people. There are many people, and we see them in the news every night of every week of every year, um, littered with news of people that do not value people. I was at my father-in-law's, me and Wanda, yesterday, and mother and, and my stepmother, and we watched a video about uh, a terrorist attack that happened quite a few years ago in the States. I'd never, never seen it before. It was so graphic. It was so real. Um, it just, it kind of messes with you and leaves you kind of speechless. All the stuff that happened because of it. The thing that blew me away the most, there were nine people killed. They were killed at a prayer meeting in the church or a Bible study in the church. And every one of them, it was the first time it happened in North America, um, every one of the victim's representatives or family member or whoever had a chance to say something to the accused. And it never happened before until that time. Now it happens all the time. Victim statements, we call them now, victim impact statements. Every one of them, before they said what they didn't like about what happened, um, typically every one of them said, um, I forgive you. Everyone, I forgive you. You did this and this and this and it wounded me and all these other details, but I forgive you. Every one of them. It just so messed with people <laughs> that they didn't know how to handle it. Some of them accused them for being accepting of it and all that kind of because they say to forgive them. And, but there's a sense here, there's a sense here that this, this release comes to this woman's life because someone has valued her. And no one values you like Jesus Christ. And the proof of it is how he lived his life and how he died and how he came back and why he did it for us. All people are valued by Jesus. Even the ones that you think are useless or pathetic or unredeemable, Jesus says in possible for you to think that way because they're all valuable to me. Dear woman is a term of affection. It's a term of respect, of honor even. He elevated her worth in front of all those people. Dear woman, he says, you are healed, which could mean to release, to set free someone from something. The perfect tense of this word or phrase means you have been freed and you are in the state of continuing to be free. She was liberated. Now, when God does something in our lives to change our circumstances and our situation, um, it's nice that it happens, but what's best is that it continues. That's the part that we play. We continue to do what God has started in us. It's so important. It's critical. This, this word also, this word healed in the Greek is used by medical writers to, uh, for the release uh, from disease. That is relaxing tendons and membranes and all those kinds of things. Everything that re relates to this woman. She's freed. Keep in mind that Luke, the one writing the book, was himself a physician. So when you're reading certain stories in the Gospels about what happened to certain people, Luke will bring a different angle to it, and he'll bring the physician angle. When Peter cuts off the ear, that's all you hear from one of the writers. Um, but Luke tells you the name of who the victim was because he's a physician, and he saw it, and he knew what was going on. 
Observation four, compassionate people significantly impact the lives of others. Sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it's over time, but usually compassionate people are committed to walk with people and to journey with people. Sometimes until they're helped, sometimes um, maybe not, but they're, they're, they're there with that person until something happens. Verse 13 says that Jesus touched her and instantly, that is immediately, she could stand straight. Literally means to straighten up again. It's another medical term, meaning to straighten, to put into natural position an abnormal or dislocated part of the body. Isn't it amazing? Jesus did exactly what he needed to do to see that this woman was healed. And today, the touch of Jesus still and always changes lives to those who put their lives in Jesus' hands. It takes of us this admission, this acknowledgement that I cannot fix myself. You and I know so many people that are trying to fix themselves and to fix their worlds, and it doesn't work. And God's just waiting in the backdrop. Jesus is just longing for us to say we need help. I can't do this is not just a powerful thing in your marriage, but with your spiritual walk with Jesus. Because you're walking alone without Jesus if you don't give Jesus the right over your life. Jesus had the heart, the eyes, and the hands of compassion. He touched her. He literally laid his hands on her. It's like what we do when we're consecrating a new pastor. Um, We lay hands on people and pray for people. When I was at Crossroads, my, my deacon took this rather literally, the laying on of hands. So when he talked about it, I kind of stepped away from him a couple of paces because usually when he said that, he said it joking to the people around me and he'd get try to get a hold of my neck <laughs> when he'd say, I want to lay hands on you, brother. And I didn't let him do that too much. But when Jesus does it, he's saying to us, it's possible that this can happen for you. Verse 13 says that she... It says in in one text how she praised God as a declaration. But a more literal, and I'd say more accurate translation is that she began to glorify God. The hallelujah that we talked about, that Steve alluded to this morning. She was rejoicing. She was praising God for what Jesus did. Unashamedly in front of everybody in the synagogue, which, which would have been packed because it was always packed because you were a Jew and you were faithful and you went to synagogue. You just did that. Observation number five. Compassionate people sometimes break the rules. Verse 14 says, But the leader of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. One author writes that the Pharisees' Pharisees' Sabbath traditions were the issue that most frequently provoked controversy in Jesus' ministry. And I think he was strategic about it. I think he liked to upset the apple cart. Um, if Wanda would be with me every Sunday, um, often I would have to find her um, because she liked messing with people. She'd sit in different places. 
just to see how people would respond to their seat being taken. Of course, it's not your seat. I heard a story once about a pastor, a young pastor who was uh, tapped on the shoulder by an old-time member of his church that he had just started at, and he was complaining because somebody was in his seat. And this young pastor, naive as he was, had the courage to go and look under the seat and couldn't find anybody's name, so he said, the names, your name's not on the seat. Apparently, that was the last time they came to church, which is a really sad testimony to one's convictions about church and about other things. When Jesus heals this woman on the Sabbath, the religious types are outraged. Indignant means angry against what is judged to be wrong. They are saying, Jesus, you should not be doing this. Why? Because they had all of these rules about the the Sabbath. What you can do, what you can't do. When Jesus heals this woman, uh, it, it should... We should see this, and it should kind of mess with us, because to you and me, such a perspective really seems backwards. Like, what would happen this morning if Jesus healed somebody in our church service? Would you be elated, or would you say, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, shouldn't happen? Sounds ludicrous. It's upside down. It's backwards. We see things in such a, a, a dislocated way. Listen to verse 14. I call it the illogical logic of the Pharisees. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. So now you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, heal me. Totally flips it. It's not Jesus having compassion on someone. Now they got to line up, according to the Pharisees, to do it what they would call right. So according to the Pharisees' rules, Jesus was working on the Sabbath because he gave medical attention to a sick person, which is a no-no. Now, if you were the one taking your sick person to Jesus, you would think differently too. That is, I think for many of us, we know what that's kind of like. It's like us being upset because someone... Uh, did something that we knew they were going to do, but they did it anyway, and we just had a problem with it. To me, it's like earlier generations of us that uh, we had sometimes in our growing up years where you can't play catch, you can't go swimming, ride a bike, smile, breathe too loudly, or have fun of any kind on Sunday. Some of you remember that, don't you? Some of us held those rules. Some of us made those rules. And we look back and it's like, what in the world were we doing? We're no different than the Pharisees. We couldn't have any fun on Sunday until at 7 o'clock, the wonderful world of Disney came, came on. Then we could enjoy ourselves. But otherwise, we couldn't have any fun. We were supposed to sit still, be quiet all afternoon. Meanwhile, our parents are sitting around the table laughing and having fun with their Christian friends that they invited over for the afternoon. But you kids, go where we can't hear or see you and behave and don't do anything. Yeah, that sums it up. Just don't do anything. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I actually had a father come to me one day, and he pulled me aside, and he said, I'm taking my kids out of the youth program. I said, well, why would you do that? 
Well, he says, because my children should be, if they're doing anything, they should be reading their Bible all the time and praying. And I'm taking them out because they're having some fun. And I think, I think, and I don't know the depth of it, but I think he lost the respect of his, his young, especially his teenage children when he did that. But his mind was made up. It was so black and white from what he had learned over the generations that on Sunday, you can get away with a lot of things, but you can't have fun. Jesus was not kind in response to the Pharisees, but replied to them, uh, you, do you remember what he called them? You, starts with H, ends with hypocrites. You hypocrites. Have you ever been called a hypocrite? I think all of us have at some time in our life. Somebody calls us a hypocrite. I've had it. Uh, very rarely um, at home. Um, but I, I have a son that a couple of times he, he has said that to me, Dad, you're being a hypocrite. Now, I didn't want to hit him or anything because that wouldn't be the brother in Christ's way. Um, but it got my attention real quick. And any time, especially at home, that I've been called a hypocrite, my kids were right. And I had to make adjustments. When it was with people in the church sometimes or whatever, um, you have to take it in context and process that. But Jesus is upset with the Pharisees just as much as they're upset with him. And to say that word out loud and publicly is a big deal. You hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? They didn't say it, but the answer is yes. Remember last week we talked about the fact that a human created in God's image is more than a bird? It applies here. We're also more valuable than an ox or a donkey. And then Jesus continues in verse 16, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is. Let me explain that. A daughter of Abraham. Literally, the language indicates that she has the faith of Abraham and is a member of God's people. He's elevating her to the highest that she could be in faith and in practice with the rest of the Jews. Dear woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 long years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? He's asking, isn't it logical and necessary that that should happen? Of course, they make no answer. They can't say anything. They won't say anything. Verse 17 from the New American Standard. And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire multitude were rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. There is a stark contrast here between the humiliation and the celebration that were happening at the same time. People were just over the roof about what Jesus did for this woman, this, this dear, broken, crippled woman who now was standing in their midst. There's a great difference between the, the two. Compassion can upset people and compassion can greatly encourage people. Over the years, I have learned that obedience to God, especially the nudging of God's spirit, is the key to the flourishing life. We make a lot of decisions in life 
that lead us if we continue to follow that trail to languishing. And to languish is not a really good word to be defined by. Flourishing, on the other hand, is what God wants us to do. Um, I alluded to this story last Sunday, and I'm going to give you the bigger picture about me learning to be compassionate. Um, It was a number of years ago now that I was driving my five-ton truck when I used to be a truck driver before I started doing what I'm doing now, driving my truck up up an on-ramp to a stoplight, and there he was, the homeless guy standing there with his cardboard sign, a big sign that said in big letters, no food. And I had no compassion, no food. But in this instance, without hesitation, I reached into my duffel bag, and in my duffel bag, I found my lunch, what was left of it, and I pulled it out. And if you remember, I had four fudgios in that little baggie. And as I said last week, those little four fudgios, I saved the best to last always. And they were the last. And I had them in my hand, and without hesitation, I got his attention, and he came and to my door of the truck, and I handed him my baggie with four fudgios in it. He grinned with the biggest grin you'd imagine, as, as I think I remembered last time that I told you, he had very few teeth left, but he had this great big huge grin, and you could see a couple of teeth, and he said this, chocolate, he said, I love chocolate. It's my favorite thing since I quit drinking. I drove away, I drove away, I was smiling too, but I was, I was almost bawling. Not because of some things that you would think. I was bawling because I was so impacted by the feeling that I had inside because of doing what God was telling me to do. It wasn't my great idea to hand out my four baggies. If I had my own way, I would have kept them there till the end of my day. So I drove away in tears because I was impacted by obeying what God wanted me to do, and he'd been wanting me to do it for months. And I ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. You have to understand that over the previous months, I had been ignoring the guy and his friends. I'd prayed for green lights so I didn't have to stop. I prayed for cars to be in front so I wouldn't be there. I made every excuse in my book, in my mind, and in my heart to not do what God was telling me to do. But I knew every time I drove by that man or one of his comrades that I was disobeying God. So that day I drove away smiling in tears because I knew that God was smiling on me and it was a profound feeling. And I'm not all about feelings, but never ignore them because God put them there for a reason. Disobedience to the promptings of the Spirit in your life, even in relation to being compassionate will lead to a languishing life just as obedience will lead to flourishing. And to me, compassion comes in all circumstances and all possibilities, including in a small butt baggie with four fudgios. You can show compassion with the littlest of things because the heart is there, which makes you feel safe to other people, which they will open your lives to you because genuine compassion cannot be missed. Now, 
On the screen, there's those five compassionate people pieces. I'm wondering as you look at them, I don't know if you jotted them down. Some of you are just good at thinking and keeping stuff in your mind. If one of those five stand out to you, my great encouragement is pay attention to that because maybe God's nudging you about someone that you've kind of ignored for a long time because you don't, I don't want to get involved. Jesus wants us to get involved. We can't function as a believer without involvement beyond our own self. Jesus, again, I just thank you for your continued work in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for New Life Church. Everyone, every church, it seems, everywhere I go, um, are wrestling with so many things, not only COVID, but just how do we live and function as a church because things have so changed. And God, help us in our journey as individuals, as a, as a congregation, to be people known for their compassion, known for this spirit that is drawing them to the people who have needs that nobody else cares about. God, put it on our heart. Open our eyes to see what you see and who you see. And give us the corresponding sense, God, of what you would have us do to honor you, to obey you, that would lift another spirit and bring joy to their life and maybe, just maybe, Jesus, bring them to faith in you. Do that, Father, as we respond to your nudging today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you for your patience. And as you go, mingle. Take your time. There's coffee. There's tea. Take some time just to connect. If you don't recognize somebody like me, say hi and tell them your name. It will help me and others. Thank you. Bless you.